Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 15. It will be our Old Testament reading. This uh, passage is, this chapter is very important for Paul's argument in Romans 4 today. And we're going to read the whole thing for the context of this history in the life of Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. Okay, let's turn now to Romans chapter 4. So, backing up, we, we ended last time with chapter 3, verse 28. So... Um, our text today is going to start at chapter 3, verse 29. Actually, it's a little different from what the bulletin says. That was my mistake. Um, but I'm going to back up to verse 27 of chapter 3 just to get a running start. Romans three twenty-seven through 4.12. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. You may be seated. How would you feel if you had a job, say, cutting down trees? Okay, you're a logger, Paul Bunyan type. And uh, one day, your boss comes along and he says, All right, listen up. At the end of the day, I have a very special gift for you. Now, this job is really hard work, and so the prospect of having a special gift from the boss at the end of it kind of perks you up. And um, you say, well, thanks, boss. That's, that's great. And so you, you chop down trees all day long. And as the sun sets, you're exhausted. You're that really good kind of tired and sore from a long day's work. And your boss comes to you with a smile on his face. He hands you your paycheck. And you say, uh, so, Mr. Boss, what, what about that gift you were telling me about this morning. And he says, oh, that is the gift. Isn't it nice? Uh, look at all that money I just gave you. You even have a little extra this week because you worked some long days and did overtime. Look at, look at all of this. And you say, oh, right, well, what about the gift? And he says, that is the gift. Think about how that might make you feel. All right now, another scene. 
Imagine you're at somebody's birthday party. And somebody opens the gift that you brought them. You had put a lot of thought into it. It was just the right thing. And they look at you and their eyes light up. And they say, this is great. I love it. How much do I owe you? Or think about it the other way around. It's your birthday and you open a really, really nice gift. A really big one. And your eyes light up until you see the invoice. It says, please... Send payment within 30 days. Okay, I think you get the point here. These three scenes. There's a, a big, big difference between a gift and a paycheck. They're just not the same thing. And if you try to treat one of them like the other, you get into all kinds of problems. That's a... Uh, a big idea kind of in the middle of Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at this whole passage in three parts this morning. Um, first, believing or boasting. That's up through chapter 4, verse 3. Second will be payment or present, verses 4 through 8. And then number three, before or after, verses 9 through 12. So believing or boasting, payment or present, and before or after. So first, believing or boasting. Last time we ended with that wonderful gospel statement that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Um, Paul has spent the last three chapters proving that Jews and Gentiles both are aware of the law of God, are accountable to the law of God, and have both failed to keep the law of God. All have sinned. None are righteous. But God is righteous. Right? God is righteous. And God is determined to reveal, to manifest, to show his righteousness clearly in the way that he deals with sinners like us. Now, there are two ways that God can do this. He can simply condemn us and we couldn't really complain because that's exactly what we deserve. It would be just and righteous for God to do. God's righteousness is revealed when he judges sinners. But now, that was that glorious statement of Paul in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now... God has done something else. He has revealed his righteousness in another way. Apart from the law. He's revealed his righteousness in the law. But he's also revealed his righteousness apart from the law. How? By sending the righteous one. Jesus, the righteous one. To live a perfectly righteous life. And then to suffer on the cross the perfectly righteous penalty that we had coming to us because of our sin. So by taking our sin on himself and giving us his perfect righteousness instead, God has revealed his righteousness, manifested it, showed it, but in another way that does not condemn us. 
Christ has created this new way for God to look at us and to say, you are righteous. And for him to be telling the truth, not because you've earned your own righteousness, but because God is saying, I've given you mine. I've given you mine in Christ. That's what God's done. And then on our side of things, Paul wants us to know that there's only one way that you can receive that gift. So, so far we've been talking about what God has done to earn it and to give, to offer it. But how do you get it? How do you receive it? How does it become yours? And there's only one way, Paul says. Only one way you can experience the kind of thing he's describing. That righteousness apart from the law. And that is through faith. You don't work hard to earn it. You hold out your hand to receive it. Trust, you believe in what Jesus did for you. And so, Paul said, none of us then have anything left to brag about, right? We all start out guilty under the law of God. That's true whether we're Jews or Gentiles. We're all in the same predicament. And all of us then can only be saved in this one way, not by law-keeping, but by faith. Again, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter. That's what Paul is coming back to then in verse 29, where we pick up this morning. Chapters 1 through 3 have already proven that Jews and Gentiles have the same problem. Now Paul is going to show that God's solution is the same for both as well. The way he puts it, basically, it's not like there are two gods. One God for Jews and one God for Gentiles. There's only one God. God is one, verse 30. And an implication of that is that that one God has only one way of salvation. Jew or Gentile, either way, the basic way that you as a sinner can come to God and be saved is exactly the same. It is through faith. It is through faith. Okay. Now at this point, and kind of imaginary Israelite audience member listening to Paul might raise their hypothetical hand and say, oh, wait a second, Paul. So, so Paul, it sounds to me like you're contradicting the Old Testament. Do I have that right? Are you trying to say the Old Testament is gone? Is, is, um, Wrong that because in the Old Testament God gave us the law, right? I thought that that was the way that He gave to us to prove our righteousness. And so, in this next section, Paul is answering that question. And he says, "Okay, let's let's talk about the Old Testament. In fact, why don't we do a case study? In fact, let's do the ultimate case study of Abraham himself." Let's let's see, does all this talk about being justified by faith contradict the way things were for Abraham? Or does it closely match the way things were for Abraham? Is this justification by faith kind of coming out of the blue, blowing up the Old Testament system? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith, Paul asks? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And let me show you this. Let me show you this, he's saying, from the life of Abraham himself. 
Okay, so here Paul takes us straight to the, the very same Old Testament chapter that we read a few minutes ago, Genesis 15. And in that chapter, God makes Abram an outlandish promise. And even though Abram has lived for many years, many years, without having a child of his own, the Lord is actually going to give him a son in his old age. And not just one son. He's going to give him descendants as vast in number as the stars in the sky. Okay, so what is Abraham's part in all this? Does God require Abraham to perform some great heroic task, like Hercules, you've got to go clean out the Aegean stables if you want this son. Abraham, if you want a son, you're going to have to work for it. Here is a list of things for you to do. And if you do them all, then you get your son. Now, of course, that's not what the Lord says. If so, if that's the way things had gone down for Abraham, then he would absolutely have had something to brag about. And we would think of him like we think about Hercules. Wow, look at Abraham and how righteous he was. Look at all this stuff that he did. How heroic he was in his obedience to God. Abraham could say, look at this list that God gave me. I checked it all off. And God rewarded me with a son. Except that's not what happened at all. Not at all. There was no feat that Abraham could have performed. There was no list he could have checked off to deserve the birth of Isaac. That was a gift. So extravagant, so undeserved, and so miraculous. Abraham never could have earned that from the Lord, especially when you consider some of the things that Abraham actually does in his life that would have deserved the opposite because of his sin. See, what happens in Genesis 15 is the Lord simply promises it. He simply promises it to Abraham. And in response, Abraham believed that promise of God. He believed that God was able to do it, something that seemed very unlikely. And not only that, he also believed that God would do it because he trusted God's character. He trusted that God would be true to his word. And so Genesis fifteen six says, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Justification through faith alone, then. You see the point here. This is not a new and unexpected plot twist suddenly springing on the scene with the coming of Jesus and throwing out everything that's come before it. It is not a contradiction to the way God did things in Old Testament times. People can sometimes get this wrong, thinking, well, of course, in the Old Testament, God's people were saved through keeping the law. Now, people are saved through faith. And to that, Paul would answer, what about Abraham? Let's let's trace the covenant stream back to its headwaters, back to the very first spring, way up in the hills, and let's see what the water is like there, where it first comes bubbling up out of the ground. And what do we find there? 
what we find is Abraham being counted righteous by God, not because of any work that he did, not because of any record of law-keeping that he achieved. We find that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this brings us to the whole idea I started with about the difference between a gift and a paycheck. And this is point number two, payment or present. Verse four, now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if if salvation, forgiveness, righteousness comes as a reward for hard work, if you get those blessings from God because you've done something to deserve them, well, you can call that a lot of things, but the one thing you can't call it is grace. It's not not grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is free. Grace is undeserved by definition, something you can't earn, that you can't buy, that you can't work for. You can only receive it. Otherwise, what you end up with isn't actually grace, it's something else. So that uh, paycheck you got as a lumberjack, remember? That was not a gift. But if you get a real gift, how rude would it be Instead of receiving it gracefully with gratitude and humility, what if you instead asked, what do I owe you? What, what, do I, what do I do to feel like I'm no longer in your debt because I don't like that feeling? What do I do to get rid of this feeling that I'm somehow beholden to you? To feel like I actually, actually deserve and have earned what you've just tried to freely give me. Do you see how... Rude doesn't even begin to describe that. Do you see how that's cheapening the other person's generosity? It's cheapening your relationship with the giver. See, the only way to receive God's gift of righteousness is to admit at the outset that you don't have any of your own. You have to declare your spiritual bankruptcy and say to God, The only hope I have is your promise of forgiveness. I'm going to focus on forgiveness in particular for a second. Forgiveness um, is an important aspect of justification. Um, The term we were talking about a lot last week. It's not the whole thing. It's kind of like one side of the coin. Justification is about God taking Christ's righteousness and counting it as ours, saying this is yours now. But it's also, on the other side, it's also about him not counting our sin against us. It's as much about what God doesn't count as what God does count. And that's the point of this quotation from Psalm 32, uh, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those... Uh, In verses 7 and 8, the first couple verses, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Just think about that. What a blessing it is to be forgiven by God fully, freely for him. Not to count your sin against you. Not to treat you the way your sin deserves. Instead, as other pastors and scriptures All over the Old Testament described, he wipes it clean, he blots it out, he covers it over, he removes it from you, he casts it into the depths of the sea, 
That's what God does with your sin. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? Is it because he's the God of second chances? And he gave you a chance to make up for it later? No. It's not because you did better on your second try or third or whatever. No, it is apart from works, period, Paul says. It simply doesn't depend on what you get done for God. It is all about what God promises to do for you. And that makes all the difference in the world. You receive that forgiveness simply by faith. Simply by believing in the promise of Christ who died. Died in his heroic effort to take your sins away. By quoting from Psalm 32, Paul is doubling up here, uh, showing yet again that this idea of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is not a newfangled idea of Paul's, it is a basic teaching of the Old Testament both in the time of Abraham, before Moses, and in the time of David, who came after Moses. This is how God has always done things. He's given grace to lawless people, not payment to law-abiding people. He has given grace to lawless people, not payment to law-abiding Uh, Plus, God has always intended for this grace-given, faith-received salvation to be available not just to the single ethnic group of Israel, but actually to the whole world. And that's a corner that Paul turns next in verse 9. Somebody might have heard Paul up to this point and said, okay, Paul, you've brought up Abraham. But, I mean, everybody knows Abraham did have to keep certain laws from God. In fact, it was Abraham that God originally commanded to be marked with the covenant sign of circumcision. Case in point, you know, we rest our case. Maybe salvation is by works after all. Abraham. Maybe, or, or maybe if there's this faith element, maybe that's just for Jews, children of Abraham. Paul, how does, how does what you teach about Abraham have any relevance at all for non-Jews, these Gentile Christians that you're so fond of? Doesn't that ritual requirement of circumcision weigh against this idea of yours that Abraham was saved by faith only. I can't imagine Paul saying, I'm glad you asked. Because he asks himself rhetorically, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. But Abraham was circumcised, you say. Yes, but When? When makes all the difference here. Let's make sure we get this in the right order. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And remember that the command about the covenant sign doesn't come until Genesis 17. That's two chapters and about 13 years, at least 13 years after Genesis 15. After Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 13 plus years where Abraham was justified by faith, but did not have the covenant sign. 
And so in terms of the outward ritual sign, for those 13 years, Abraham was indistinguishable from a Gentile. And yet he was clearly justified by faith during that time. Talk about Abraham being like a Gentile. Of course, that's exactly the way the Lord found him, right? Abraham was chosen out from among the nations. What made him different was not something special about him. What made him different was the sovereign choice and the powerful call of God bringing him out and setting him apart and making him different, making a difference between the rest of the world and him, as well as his family after him. The covenant sign came later. That covenant sign was designed to ratify, to represent, to seal that reality, which for Abraham had already taken place. He received the sign of circumcision, Paul says, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. We talk about um, believer's baptism versus infant baptism. You could say here that Abraham underwent a believer's circumcision. Faith came first, and then the sign. Now, don't forget, for his sons, it was different, right? They received the same sign, but for them, the sign came first. And for Isaac, at least, the faith came later. That's very important. And it's a very close parallel to the way that baptism operates in the church today. For a person who comes to faith in Christ from outside the church, as an adult, the faith comes first and the baptism follows. For our covenant children, as for Abraham's covenant children, the sign comes first and we pray that the faith comes later. Sign calls our children to faith. Okay? It's a little bit of a rabbit trail. But let's think about Abraham again here. In Abraham's case, which is what Paul's focusing on here, the sign came after he believed. The sign came after he believed. That means that that Abraham's righteousness before God did not rest even a little bit on his obedience to the circumcision command because Abraham was already righteous in God's sight before he started participating in that ceremony of the law. That legal ceremony did not make Abraham righteous in God's sight because Abraham was already righteous in God's sight. Abraham was counted righteous because he believed God. Now think for a second about what that implies. Verse 11, God's purpose. God's purpose was to make Abraham the father then of all who believe without being circumcised. And you see the point here, Abraham we think of as the ultimate father of the Jewish people, right? The ancestor of the Israelites. But Paul is saying he's so much more than that because he didn't start out that way. Abraham is really the perfect example of a covenant outsider becoming right with God, not through law-keeping, but through faith alone, which is the only way that anybody can come to God and hope to be saved. You can see how this opens a tremendous door of hope for non-Jews, right? For Gentile Christians. When I trust in Christ, you think, I'm doing, in essence, the same thing that Abraham did. I'm, I'm being saved the same way Abraham was. Even though I'm not a physical descendant of Abraham, he is my spiritual father in the faith. On the other hand, this also held a huge lesson for the Jewish Christians of Paul's day who needed to realize, look, just having the covenant sign of Abraham all by itself is spiritually worthless to me if I don't share the faith of Abraham too. Having the covenant sign isn't something to be proud of. 
I need to make sure that I walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, verse 12. Okay. And these have been kind of deep waters. If I could just leave you with one thing as we draw to a close this morning, to think about your own walk with, with Christ, your own way that you think of your relationship with God and the way you go about your, your day and thinking about yourself and your connection to the Lord today and tomorrow. Here it is. One thing. This passage teaches us to beware of thinking of our relationship with God as a transaction. I do some things for God that he wants so that he will do for me some things that I want. Beloved, that is not how faith goes. That is not Christianity. And it's not the way of salvation. Faith is about taking God at his word. It's admitting God owes me nothing. And for what he has given me, I can never repay him. And to try to do that would simply be to insult the gift and the giver. When God looks at you and he calls you righteous, that is not a payment for work that you've put in to please him. It is a gift, a gift that has been earned and purchased by somebody else, earned and purchased by Jesus and handed to you. And your job then is to receive that gift with empty, open hands of humility. It does take humility. Humility and gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what I could not and for suffering what I deserved so that I could be forgiven, so that I could have your life at work in me. We have nothing to brag about. But we have an awful lot to give thanks for. Because our lawless deeds have been forgiven. Our sins are covered. The Lord isn't going to count our sins against us. Imagine what good news that is. Especially when you remember that we did nothing to deserve any of that. That Jesus Christ did everything that it took. So I just have to ask you, before we close, have you received that gift from God? Do you believe the promise of God's word that you can be forgiven and righteous in his sight, not because of what you've done, because of what Jesus did for you. Are you walking in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had? Don't leave here today without answering that question honestly for yourself. And picking up this promise, holding it in faith, that God is holding out to you in his word today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this precious gift of righteousness, of forgiveness that you've given to us in Jesus. And we ask that you would please help us to see it clearly now as you picture it for us in the Lord's Supper. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.